Chapter Eight: An Adventure in Solitude. I awoke some time during the latter part of the night with the bemused presentiment that a long-for event was approaching or in the process of happening. Hands had passed lightly over my face, either that or I had dreamed it, and I heard a faint shout coming from the borderland between sleeping and waking. Kauri's guest bed, with its billowy mattress of kapok, seemed strangely hard, which led to the discovery that I was not lying on a bed, but on a mat in the corner of an empty room. The floor was covered with crushed coral shell, which made a faint radiance in the gloom, and a roof of green thatch was alight with reflections of moving water. I was trying to puzzle out whose house this could be, when I heard the shout again, clearly this time, in a pause of silence between deafening claps of thunder. From nearer at hand came the sound of subdued laughter, something elfish, light-hearted, in the quality of it stirred a dim memory, and there flashed into mind the lines of an old poem. Come, dear children, come out and play. The moon is shining as bright as day, up the ladder and over the wall. Raising my head quickly, I saw through the open doorway their perfect illustration. The wall was the smooth wall of the sea, with a waning moon rising just clear of it, sending a path of light to the strip of white beach in front of the house. The palm trees bordering the shore swarmed with children who were throwing down nuts. One ancient tree, its stem a fantastic curve, held its foliage far out over the water at a point where the floor of the narrow outer lagoon shelved steeply toward the reef some fifty yards distant. Both boys and girls were shinning up the trunk one after the other, diving from the plume top, dropping feet foremost, jumping with their hands clasped around their knees into the foaming water. The wreckage of huge combers, which broke on the reef, pouring across it into the inner shallows. A second group had gathered in the moonlit area just before the doorway. Several youngsters were peering intently in my direction. Others were playing a sort of hand-clapping game to the accompaniment of an odd little sing-song. A small girl with a baby riding astride her hip walked past, and I saw another of ten or twelve standing at the edge of the track of shimmering light, holding a coconut to her lips with both hands. Her head was bent far back, and her hair hung free from her shoulders as she drained the cool liquid to the last drop. Imagine coming out of the depths of sleep to the consciousness of such a scene. I was hardly more sure of the reality of it than I had been of the shout, the touch of hands. It was like a picture out of a book of fairy tales, but one quick with life, the figures coming and going against a background of empty sea, where the long swell broke in lines of white fire on a ledge of coral. I remembered where I was, of course in my own house, which stood on the ocean side of a small motu known in the Pomodian legend as the island where the souls were eating. The house had been built for me only the day before by the order of Pari, chief of the atoll of Rotario, and the motu was one of a dozen uninhabited islands which lay on the thirty-mile circumference to the lagoons. It was ordered by chance which took me there perhaps, that I was never to see the place in the clear light of usual experience, but rather through a glimmer like that of remembered dreams, a long succession of dreams in which, night after night, 
events shape themselves according to the heart's desire, or even more fantastically, with an airy disregard of any semblance to reality. So it was. Waking from sleep on the first night which I slept under my own roof, I was almost ready to believe that my presence there was not the result of chance. Waywardness of fancy is one of the most godlike of the attributes of that divinity, but the display of it is as likely as not to be unfriendly. Here there seemed to be reasoned kindly action. Providence, I said to myself, providence without a doubt. A little repentant, perhaps, because of questionable gifts in the past. A whimsical providence, to which delighted in shocking my sense of probability. What could those children be doing on Soul Eater's Island in the middle of the night? I myself had left the village island four miles distant, only a few hours earlier, and at that time everyone was asleep. There was not a sound of human activity in the settlement not a glimmer of light to be seen anywhere excepting in Moy Ling's The Chinaman's Shop, and on the surface of the lagoon where lay the mystery reflections of the stars. Perhaps, I thought, these are not earthly children. Maybe they are the ghosts of those whose souls were eaten here so many years ago. I was more than half serious in thinking of that possibility. Stranger things had happened on islands not so far removed from the world of men. I dressed very quietly and went to the door, taking care to keep well in the shadow, so that I might look on for a moment without being seen. My doubts vanished at once. Not only the children had come out to play, fathers and mothers as well. Tamatanga was there, and Rikata, and Niha, and Pohu, and Tahari and Honga, Naitain, Naivain, Tamaha, Monamo, Hawaki, and I saw old Raganete, who was at least seventy and a grandmother several times over, clapping her hands with others of her generation and swaying from side to side in time to the music of Copia's accordion. All the older people were grouped around Pari, who was seated in an old deck-chair, a sort of throne which was carried about for him wherever he went. Pora, his wife, lay on a mat beside him, her chin propped on her hands. Both greeted me cordially, but offered no explanation for the reason of the midnight visit. I was glad that they didn't. I liked the casualness of it, which was quite in keeping with habits of life at Rotario. But I couldn't help smiling, remembering my reflections earlier in the evening. I believed then that I was crossing the threshold of what was to be an adventure in solitude, and was in a mood of absurdly useful elation at the prospect. I was to delve deeply, for the first time, into my own resources against loneliness. I had known the solitude of cities, but there one has the comfortable sense of nearness to others. The refuge of books, pictures, music, all the distractions which prevent any very searching examination of one's capacity for a life of retirement. At Soul Eater's Island, I would have no books, no pictures, excepting a colored postcard of the Woolworth Building, which had won me this opportunity. And for music, I was limited to what I could make for myself with my ocarina, 
my sweet potato whistle, which had a range of one octave. Thus scantily provided with diversions, I was to learn how far my own thoughts would serve to make a solitary life not only endurable, but pleasant. So I had dreamed, as I paddled down the lagoon, with my island taking form against the starlit sky to the eastward. It was one of those places which set one to dreaming, which seemed fashioned by nature for the enjoyment of a definite kind of experience. Seeing it, whether by day or by night, the most gregarious of men, I am sure, would have become suddenly enamored of his own companionship, and the most prosaic would have discovered a second meditative self which pleads for indulgence with gentle obstinacy. But alas, my own unsocial nature gained but a barren victory, being robbed at the outset of the fruits of it by the seventy-five convenial inhabitants of Rotario. Here within six hours was half the village at my door, and Paris told me that the rest of it or as many as were provided with canoes was following. Evidently, he had suggested the invasion. My new house needed warming, or the Pomotian equivalent to that festival, so they had come to warm it. Preparations were being made on an elaborate scale. The children were gathering green nuts for drinking and fronds for the cloth at the feast. Women and girls were grating the meat of ripe nuts pressing out the milk of the mutihari, cleaning fish, preparing shells for dishes. Some of the men and the older boys were building native ovens, eight of them, each one large enough for roasting a pig. All of this work was being carried out under Pauri's direction, and to the accompaniment of Kapuya's accordion. I wish that I might have, in some way, make real to others the unreal loveliness of the scene. It must be remembered that it took place on one of the loneliest of the, a lonely cloud of islands, which lay in the midmost solitude of an empty ocean. The moonlight must be remembered, too, and how it lay in splinters of silver on the motionless fronds of the palms, as though it were of the very texture of their polished surfaces. And you must hear Caputa's accordion and the shouts of the children as they dove into the pool of silvered foam. The older ones, out of respect to me, I think wore wisps of paru cloth about their loins, but the babies were as naked as on the day they were born. Tariki was standing among these five- and six-year-olders, who were too small for the climb to the diving-place, taking them up sometimes two at once, and tossing them into the pool among the others, where they were as much at home as so many minnows. Watching them, I thought with regret of my own lost opportunities as a child. I felt a deep pity for all the children of civilization who must wear clothing, and who never know the joy of playing at midnight and by moonlight, too. Mothers' clubs and child welfare organizations would do well to consider the advisability of repealing the old to bed at seven law and bugbear of all children its only merits if it may be so called is that it fosters in children a certain melancholy intellectual enjoyment in such poems as up 
the ladder and over the wall, where the forbidden pleasures are held out to them as though they were natural ones, which most of them are, of course, and quite possible of attainment. I was sorry that Tino, supercargo of the Caleb S. Winship, could not be present to see how blithely the work went forward. He had called the people of Retario a lazy lot, and he was right. They were lazy according to the standards of temperate climates, but when they worked toward an end which pleased them, their industry was astonishing. Tino's belief was that man was made to labor, whether joyfully or not, in order that he might increase his wealth, whether he needed or not, and that of the world at large I remember meeting somewhat the same point of view in reading the lives and memoirs of some of the old missionaries to the islands. It seemed to have irked them terribly, finding a people who had never heard that doleful hymn, Work for the Night is Coming. They, too, believed that the needs of the Polynesians should be increased, but for ethical reasons, in order that they should be compelled to cultivate regular habits of industry in order to satisfy them. Although I don't agree with it, Tino's seemed to me the sounder conviction. The missionaries might have argued as reasonably for a general distribution of Job-like boils in order that the virtues of patience and fortitude might have wider dissemination, but neither trade nor religion had altered to any noticeable extent the habits of life at Rutario. The people worked as they had always done, under the press of necessity. Their simple needs being satisfied, their inertia was a thing to marvel at. I have often seen them sitting for hours at a time, moving only with the shadows which sheltered them. There was something awe-inspiring in their immobility, in their attitude of profound reverie. I felt at times that I was living in a land under perpetual enchantment of silence and sleep. These periods of calm, or as Tina would say, laziness, were usually brought to an end by Pori. It was a fascinating thing to watch him throwing off the enchantment, so gradual the process was and so strange the contrast when he was thoroughly awakened and had roused the village from its long sleep. Then would follow a period of activity, fishing, copra-making, canoe-building, whatever there was to do, would be done, not speedily, perhaps, but smoothly, and fasts would be broken, in the case of many of the villagers, for the first time in two or three days. My house was built during such a period. I was still living with Pore in the village island, wondering when, if ever, I was to have the promised dwelling. Then one afternoon, while I was absent on a shell-gathering expedition, the village set out in mass for Soul Eater's Island, cut the timbers, branded the fronds, erected, swept, and garnished my house, and were at the settlement again before I myself had returned. That task finished, here they were back for the warming festival, and the energy spent in preparing for it would have more than loaded Tino's schooner with copra. I couldn't flatter myself that all of this was done solely to give me pleasure. They found pleasure in it, too. Furthermore, I knew that an unusually long interval of fasting called for compensation in the way of feasting. Paris was in a gay mood. Religion sat rather heavily upon him sometimes by virtue of his papati schooling. He was the chief elder of his church, but once he sloughed off the his air of latter-day saintliness, he made a splendid master of revels, and he threw it aside the moment the drums began to beat 
and led a dozen of the younger men in a dance which I had not seen before. It was very much like modern Swedish drill set to music, except that the movements were as intricate and graceful as they were exhausting. Three kinds of drums were used, one an empty gasoline tin upon which the drummer kept up a steady roll while the dance was in progress. The rhythm for the movements was indicated by three others, two of them beating hollowed cylinders of wood, while a third was provided with an old French army drum of the Napoleonic period. The syncopation was extraordinary. Measures were divided in an amazing variety of ways, and often, when the opportunity seemed lost, the fragments joined perfectly, just as the next one was at hand. The music was a kaleidoscope in sound, made up of unique and startling variations in tempo, as the dance moved from one figure to the next. At the close of it, Kupia took up her accordion again, and dancing by some of the women followed. At length, Rangatui, grandmother though she was, could resist the music no longer. The others gave way to her, and in a moment she was dancing alone, proudly, with a sort of wistful abandon as though she were remembering her youth, throwing a last defiance in the teeth of time. Kapia sang as she played to an air which had but four changes in it. The verse was five words long and repeated endlessly. ta fra to pa mai ta fra po ta mai Both the words and the air had a familiar sound. They called to mind a shadowy picture of three tall, thin women in spangled skirts, all of them beating tambourines in unison and dancing in front of a painted screen. I couldn't account for the strange vision at first. It glimmered faintly far in the depths of subconscious memory, like a colored newspaper supplement lying in mercury water at the end of a pier. Suddenly it rose into focus, drawn to the surface by the buoyant splendor of a name. I remembered then a vaudeville troupe, which long ago made sorry capital of its lack of comeliness and I saw them again on the island where the souls were eaten as clearly as ever I had as a youngster, knocking their tambourines or bony elbows, shaking their curls, and saying, "Shoo fly, don't bother me, in shrill, cracked voices. Copia's version was merely a phonetic translation of the words. They meant nothing in the Pomodian dialect, and old woman though she was, Rangatay's dance, which accompanied the music, played in faster and faster time, was in striking contrast to the angular movements of the Cherry Sisters, tripping it in the background across the dim footlights of the 1890s. Other canoes were arriving during this time, and at last a large canoe, which had put off from the ocean side of the village island, was seen making in toward the pass. It was loaded with pigs and chickens, the most important part of the feast, and had been eagerly awaited for more than an hour. Shouts of anticipation went up from the shore as the boat drew in with its wished-for freight. But these were a little premature. There was a stretch of ugly broken water to be passed, where the swift ebb from the lagoon met the swell of the open sea. The canoe was badly jostled in crossing it, and some of the chickens, having worked loose from their bonds, escaped. Like the dogs of the atolls, the chickens were of a wild breed, and they took through the air with sturdy wings. The chase from the shore began at once, but it was a hopeless one. Soul Eater's Island is five hundred yards long by three hundred broad, 
and there is another on the opposite side of the pass, which is more than a mile in extent. We made frantic efforts to prevent them from reaching it. We threw sticks and stones, tried to entice them with broken coconuts, the meat temptingly accessible. It was to no purpose. They had been enticed before. Their crops were full, and several hours of captivity had made them wary. Furthermore, like all Polynesian chickens, they seemed to have a racial memory of what they had been in other times, in less congenial environments, of the lean days when they had been caught and eaten at will, chased by dogs, run down by horses. They were not so far from all as to have lost conscious pride in the regained prerogative of flight. The last we saw of them, they were using it to splendid advantage over the rapid stream which separated the two islands. One old hen alone remained perched on the top of a coconut tree on Soul Eater's Island. She was in no hurry to leave. She knew that she could follow the others whenever she liked, and she knew that we knew it. She seemed drunk with a sense of freedom and power, and cackled proudly, as though more than half convinced that the nuts clustered in the nest of foliage beneath her wings were eggs which she had laid. Knowing the wholesomeness of the Palmanian appetite, I could understand why the loss of the chickens was regarded seriously. A dozen of them remained, and we had eight pigs weighing from one hundred to one hundred and fifty pounds each, to say nothing of some fifty pounds of fish. All of this was good in so far as it went, but there was a gloomy shaking of heads as we returned from our fruitless chase. Not that the Palmodians were particularly fond of chicken. On the contrary, they didn't care generally for a fowl of any sort, but it serves to fill odd corners of their capricious stomachs. It was this they were thinking of, and the possible lack, at the end of the feast, of the feeling of almost painful satiety, which is to them an essential after-dinner sensation. In this emergency I contributed four one-pound tins of beef and salmon, my entire stock of substantial provisions for the adventure in solitude. But I could see that Paris, as well as the others, regarded this as a mere relish, a wholly acceptable but light course of hors Fortunately, there was at hand an inexhaustible reservoir of food, the sea, and we prepared to go there for further supplies. I never lost an opportunity to witness those fish-spearing expeditions. Once I had tried my hand as a participant, and found myself as dangerously out of my element as a Pomodian would be at the joystick of an airplane. I saw a great many fish, but I could not have speared one of them if it had been moored to the bottom, and after a few absurd attempts was myself fished into the boat half-drowned. I lay there a few minutes, gasping for breath, my eardrums throbbing painfully from the attempt to reach unaccustomed depths. The experiments convinced me that fish-spearing in the open sea is not an easily acquired art, but one handed down in its perfection through the last twenty generations of Low Island ancestors. It is falling into disuse in some of the atolls, where wealth is accumulating and tinned food plentiful but the inhabitants of Rotario still follow it with old-time zest. They handle their spears affectionately, as anglers handle and sort their flies. These are true sportsmen's weapons, provided with a single unbarbed dart, bound with sinnet to a tapering shaft from eight to ten feet long. Their water-goggles, like their spears, 
they make for themselves. They are somewhat like an aviator's goggles, discs of clear glass fitted in brass rims with an inner cushion of rubber which cups closely around the eyes, preventing the entrance of water. When adjusted, they give the wearer an owlish appearance, like the horn-rimmed spectacles which used to be affected by American undergraduates. Thus equipped with their parus girded into loincloths, a half-dozen of the younger men jumped into the rapid current which flows past Soul Eaters Island and swam out to sea. Tohikia Tihina Pinga, the boat-steerer, and I, followed in a canoe. Dawn was at hand, and, looking back, I saw the island, my house, and the crowd on the beach in the suffused, unreal light of sun and fading moon. In front of us, the swimmers were already approaching the tumbled waters at the entrance to the pass. Upon reaching it, they disappeared together, and I next saw them far on the other side, swimming in a direction parallel to the reef and some fifty yards beyond the breaking point of the surf. When we joined them, the sun was above the horizon, and they were already at the sport. They lay face down on the surface of the water, turning their heads now and then for a breath of air. They swam with an easy breaststroke and a barely perceptible movement of the legs, holding their spears with their toes near the end of the long shaft. Riding the long, smooth swell, it was hard to keep them in view, and they were diving repeatedly, coming to the surface again at unexpected places. Through the clear water I could see every crevice and cranny in the shelving slope of coral the mouths of gloomy caverns which undermined the reef in swarms of fish as strangely colored as the coral itself passing through them flashing across sunlit spaces or hovering in the shadows of overhanging ledges it was a strange world to look down upon and stranger still to see men moving about it as though it were their natural home sometimes they grasped their spears as a pinard would be held for a downward blow sometimes with the thumb forward thrusting with an underhand movement they were marvelously quick and accurate at striking i had a nicer appreciation of their skill after my one attempt which had proven to me how difficult it is to judge precisely the distance the location of the prey and the second for the thrust a novice was helpless he suffered under the heavy pressure of the water and the long holding of his breath cost him agonizing effort even though he were comfortable physically, he might chase with as good a result the dancing reflections of a mirror, turned this way and that in the sunlight. As they searched the depths to the seaward side, the bodies of the fishers grew shadowy, vanished altogether, reappeared as they passed over a lighter background of blue or green, which marked an invisible shoal. At last they would come clearly into view, the spear held erect rising like embodied spirits through an element of matchless purity, which seemed neither air nor water. The whistling noises which they made as they regained the surface gave the last touch of unreality to the scene. I have never understood the reason for this practice, which is universal among the divers and fishers of the low islands, unless it is that their lungs being famished for air, they breathe it out grudgingly through half-closed teeth. Heard against the thunder of the surf, the sounds, hoarse and shrill, according to the want of the diver, seemed anything but human. We returned in an hour's time, with the canoe half-filled with fish. Square-nosed tinga-tingas, 
silvery tanus, brown-spotted kitos, ganeras. We had more than made good the loss of the chickens. The preparation for the feast had been completed. The table was set, or, better, the cloth of green fronds was laid on the ground near the beach. At each place there was a tin of my colored beef or salmon, the half of a coconut shell filled with raw fish, cut into small pieces in a sauce of matihari salted coconut milk, and a green coconut for drinking. Along the center of the table were great piles of fish, baked and raw, roast pork and chicken, mounds of bread stacked up like cannonballs. The bread was not of moilings baking, but made in native fashion, lumps of broiled dough of the size and weight of large grapefruit. One would think that the most optimistic stomach would ache at the prospect of receiving it, but the Pomodian stomach is of ostrich-like hardihood, and, as I have said, after long fasting it demands quantity rather than quality in food. It was then about half-past six, a seasonable hour for the feast, for the air was still cool and fresh, the food was steaming on the table, but we were not yet ready to sit down to it. Fetty days, like Sundays, required costumes appropriate to the occasion, and every one retired into the bush to change clothing. I thought then that I was to be the only disreputable banqueter of the lot, and regretted that I had been so eager to see my new house. Not expecting visitors, I had come away from the village with only my supply of food. Fortunately, Paul Ree had been thoughtful for me. I found not only my white clothing, but my other possessions, bolts of ribbon, perfume, the cheap jewelry, etc., which I had bought on credit of Moy Ling, and the house itself had been furnished and decorated during the hour when I was out with the fish spears. There was a table and a chair, made of bits of old packing cases, in one corner, and on the sleeping mat a crazy quilt and a pillow with my name worked in red silk within a border of flowers. Hanging from the ceiling was a faded papier-mâché bell, the kind one sees in grocer's windows at home at Christmas time. This was originally the gift of some trader, and the pictures, too, which decorated the walls. They had been cut from the advertising pages of some American magazine. One of them represented a man dressed in a much-advertised brand of underwear, who was smiling with cool solicitude at two others who were perspiring heavily and wishing if the legend printed beneath was true, that their underwear bore the same stamp as that of their fortunate comrade. There was another in color, of a woman smiling across the table at her husband, who smiled back while they ate a particular brand of beans. The four walls of my house were hung with pictures of this sort, strung on cords of coconut fiber. Harry's work, I was sure, done out of the kindness of his heart. He was merely an unconscious agent of the gods administering this further reproof for my temerity in seeking consciously an adventure in solitude. As I changed my clothing, I pondered the problem as to how I could get rid of the gallery without giving Hawry offense, and from this I fell to thinking of the people smiling down at me. Is our race made up in large part of such an out-and-out -out materialists, whose chief joy in life lies in discovering some hitherto untried brand of soup or talcum powder? Do they live, these people? They look real enough in the picture. 
I seem to know many of them, and I remembered their innumerable prototypes. I had bet in the world I had left only a year before. Well, if they are real, I thought, what has become of the old doomsday men and women who used to stand at street corners with bundles of tracts in their hands, saying to passers-by, My friend, is your soul saved? No answer came from the smiling materialists on all sides of me. They smiled still, as though in mockery of my attempt to elude them in whatsoever unfrequented corner of the world, as though life were merely the endless enjoyment of creature comforts, the endless, effortless use of labor-saving devices. One man in his late fifties, who really ought to have been thinking about his soul, had in his eyes only the light of sensual gratification. He was in pajamas and half-shaven, announcing to me, to the world at large, at last, a razor. The sight of him offering me his useful little instrument put an end to my meditation. I rubbed ruefully a three-day growth of beard, thinking of the torture in store for me when I should next go to Panega for a shave. He was the village barber as well as its most skillful boat-steerer. His other customers were used to his razor and his methods, and their faces were inured to pain for had not their ancestors through countless generations had their beards plucked out hair by hair i on the other hand was the creature of my own land of creature comforts the anticipation of a shave was agony and the realization pinga sitting on my chest holding my head firm with one immense hand while he scraped and rasped with his dull razor that was to die weakly and to live to die again I got what amusement I could from the thought of the different set of values at Rotario. I had only to ask for a house, and Paris had given me one, with an island of my own to set it on. He thought no more of the request than if I had asked him for a drinking coconut. But not all the wealth of the low island pearl fisheries, had it been mine to offer, could have produced for me a safety razor, with a dozen good blades. I heard Paris shouting, Amatama, and went out to join the others, my unshaved beard, in woeful contrast to my immaculate white clothing. But my guest or host had the native courtesy of many primitive people, and I was not made conscious of my unreaped chin. Furthermore, everyone was hungry, and so after Pari had said grace for the Church of Latter-day Saints, and Hari a second one for the Reformed Church of Latter-day Saints, and Natao a third, as the Catholic representative, we fell to without further loss of time. The enjoyment of food is assuredly one of the great blessings of life, although it is not a cause for perpetual smiling, as the writers of advertisements would have one believe. According to the low island way of thinking, it is not a subject to be talked about at any length. I like their custom of eating in silence, with everyone giving undivided attention to the business in hand. It gave one the privilege of doing likewise, a relief to a man weary of the unnatural dining habits of more advanced people. It may be a trifle gross to think of your food while you are eating it, but it is natural, and if the doctors are to be believed, an excellent aid to digestion. Now and then Pauri would say, Uimamantera, a thing good that, tapping a haunch of roast pork with his forefinger, and I would reply, E-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e
Yes, a thing very good, that. Then we would fall to eating again. On my right, Hunga went from fish to pork, and from pork to tinned beef, whipping the Maitai Hari to his lips with his fingers without the loss of a drop. Only once he paused for a moment and let his eyes wander the length of the table. Shaking his head with a sigh of satisfaction, he said, Katanga Aruha Katanga. Food and yet more food. There is no phrase sweeter to Pomatonian ears than that one. Hari, the constable, was the only one who made any social demands upon me. As already related, he had once made a journey from Papati to San Francisco as a stoker on one of the mail boats, and was immensely proud of the few English phrases which he had picked up during the voyage. He didn't know the meaning of them, but that made no difference. He could put on side before the others made them believe that he was carrying on an intelligent conversation. What's the matter? Oh, yes. Never mind. Were among his favorite expressions. Unusually mild ones, it seemed to me, for one who had been associated with a gang of cockney stokers, and he brought them out apropos of nothing. He was an exasperating old hypocrite, but a genial one, and I couldn't help replying to some of his feints at conversation. Once out of curiosity, wondering what his reply would be, I said, Hurry, you're the worst old four-flusher in the seventy-two islands, aren't you? He smiled and nodded and came back with the most telling of all of his phrases. You go to hell me. On that occasion, it was delivered with that what seemed something more than mere parrot-light aptest of reply. Clipped to his undershirt, he wore a fountain pen, which was as much a part of his costume on these dress occasions as his dungaree trousers and Pandora's hat. It had a broken point was always dry, and although Hari read fairly well, he could hardly write his own name. No matter. He would no more have forgotten his pen than a French soldier his corps de guerre. But he was not alone in his love for these implements of Papaya's white man's culture. There was Havaki, for example, who owned a small folding camera, which he had bought from some trader. The two men were very jealous of each other. Hari had traveled and had a fountain pen but Havaki's camera was a much more complicated instrument. There had never been any films for it, but he was quite satisfied without them. The camera stood on a shelf at his house, an ever-present proof of his better title to distinction. His chief regret, I believe, was that he couldn't wear it, as Hari did his pen. But he often carried it with him on Sundays and went through the pretense of taking pictures, some of the more sanguine still believed that he would one day surprise the village by producing a large number of magnificent photographs. A further account of the feast at Soul Eater's Island would be nothing more than a detailed statement of the amount of food consumed, and it would not be credited as truthful. It is enough to say that it was a latter-day miracle, comparable to the feeding of the five thousand with this reversal of the circumstances that food for approximately that number was eaten by twenty-two men. At last, Paris sat back with a groan of content and said, Aye, para hurry, pie to tattoo. It is impossible to translate this literally, but the exact meaning is, We are all of us full up to the neck. It was true, we were. That is, all of the men. The women and children were waiting, and as soon as we gave them, 
place they set to on the remnants. Fortunately, there was, as Hungai has said, food and yet more food, so that no one went hungry. At the close of the feast I saw old Ragnatoy take a fragment of coca-flat frond and weave it into a neat basket. Then she gathered into it all of the fish bones and hung the basket from one of the rafters of my house. Rangituki was pure heathen, one of the unredeemed of the Rotarians, but I noticed that some of the Catholics and Latter-day Saints, even Reformed Saints of the Latter-day persuasion, all in good standing in their churches, assisted her in making the collection. I had observed the same practice at other islands. At the beginning of a meal thanks were given to the god of Christians for the bounty of the sea, but fishermen's luck was a matter of the first importance, and while the old gods might be overthrown, there seemed to be a fairly general belief that it would not do to trifle with immemorial custom. It was mid-morning before the last of the broken meats had been removed, and the beach made tidy. The breeze died away, and the shadows of the palms moved only with the imperceptible advance of the sun. It was a time for rest, for quiet meditation, and all of the older people were gathered in the shade, gazing out over a sea as tranquil as their minds, as lonely as their lives had always been, and would always be. I knew that they would remain thus throughout the day, talking a little after the refreshment of light slumbers, but for the most part sitting without speech or movement, their consciousness crossed by vague thoughts which would stir it scarcely more than the cat's palm ruffled the surface of the water. No sudden half-anguished realization of the swift passage of time would disturb the peace of the reverie. No sense of old loss to be retrieved would goad them into swift and feverish action. A land-crab moved across a strip of sunlight and sighted into his hole, pulling his grotesque little shadow after him. And the children, restless little spirits, splashed and shouted in the shallows of the lagoon, maneuvering fleets of empty beef and salmon tin, reminders of the strange beginning of my adventure in solitude. End of chapter 8